Welcome to Popcorn Talk, featuring movie discussion, news, and interviews. Popcorn Talk. We talk movies. Right. Hello. Hello, Jeff. Hi. You didn't dress up for the podcast? I wanted to say hi, Eliana, but I feel like I should say hi, Audrey, instead. Oh, you're not too sweet. Um, well, this is my shout-out to the online uh, DCM Film Festival. Tonight would have been the opening night of the festival. And so... I wanted to show this. I, I love this. is like a big deal for me. I put out my, my outfit. And so this is what I would have been wearing on the. Uh, well, you look amazing, and uh, I'm going to let our lovely producer Ryan know that music's coming in a little hot. If we could uh, just slowly fade that out, but obviously no technical difficulties at all. Um, <laughs> this is a global pandemic, people. Give us a break. Oh, and this is a dress. I, there's no reporters to ask me, but it's Tahari. I love it. Homekeeping score, and then now I'm going to multitask. So we've seen the dress. I went aqua, by the way. What do you think? I, I was kind of really going for a retro. 1959, 1969 vibe. I think it's great. This is another reason our podcast listeners have to check out the YouTube because every week Ileana comes in with the glamour. I'm, I'm trying. I'm trying. Okay, now I'm going to multitask. This is going to be fun. This is for charity, but it's also super fun. Um, and I, but I, I'm not going to get this. The name of the sweatshirt. This is a sweatshirt I was given, and. Uh, I don't have my phone in front of me. And I don't want to say the name wrong, but if you go to my uh, Instagram, we're, we'll get, you know, we'll tag it and do all that, all of yep. that kind of stuff. I'm, I'm winning the show sort of completely today, just because I, th I think it's fun to be kind of on the edge. But anyway, this is this amazing sweatshirt and uh, the proceeds of it are going to go to charity, but I'm, I'm going to wear it for the rest of the show. And um, and I've done, I think I've done everything. So hello to the TCM Film uh, Festival fans. I really miss not having our opening night. It's such a fun sort of a hang with our movie people, you know. There are people. Well, hopefully they're listening at least online to our TCM yeah. We love you, we see you. At least you can watch movies right now. And we can get some questions um, from them. And then the other funny, well, there's quite a number of funny things, but but anyway, tell me, tell me about our guest today. Because, you know, normally I like to prepare, but today I'm, I'm winging it. So Well, so Paul Fishbein is yeah. a, um, I would say he is an, sort of works on the fringes of mainstream uh -oh. filmmaking. But okay. he's a filmmaker and very immersed in the world of filmmaking. So, Ileana, catch me up. Did he connect with you? Yes, well, we did. We met because... Now I'm trying to think. I, I, he's, he's got this documentary out, which we're going to talk about. This cult about cult movies. Mm -hmm. I have not seen it, and I did the interview like two and a half years ago. I believe it was my pal Joe Dante mm. got me involved, and Joe said it's going to be you and me and John Waters and Kevin Pollack, all people I've worked with so we hung out all day and we talked about movies i have not seen uh the results of it because it was you know i participate in a lot of movie interviews so i'm really looking forward to it uh and hopefully paul will tell us all about it but then you but you said you told me something 
right before the top of the show. So in the same way that cult That's filmmaking good. sort of uh, hangs on the satellite fringes of traditional filmmaking, yeah. Paul also has a history in adult films. So okay. uh, he's the it. creator of the AVN Awards show, which okay. is the Oscars of adult filmmaking. Okay, so we're gonna ask about this, right? Oh, I would love to. He now, even um, co-created a scripted show for Showtime that is called Submission, that's like BDSM themed. <laughs> Ileana's laughing on air, just so you okay. guys. I literally just did a spit take. That's a spit take. That was a classic. And, it, and that was actually a really, just for for comedy folks out there, that was a really good spit take. <laughs> I love it. So, you know what? One thing I love about this show is we bring on all kinds of filmmakers. We've yeah. had, We've had the Christmas critic on here. We cover everything. So if we've covered Christmas movies in depth, we've covered horror movies in depth. We're going to talk a little bit about nudity in film. Well, now, I don't know if you know this about me, but I have never seen an adult uh, movie. It's funny that when did they start calling them adult movies? When I was a kid, they were called pornos and they played at the drive-in. Yeah, there's still, I still get porn. I wanted to make sure, because I, I think maybe there's a bit of a stigma around the idea of porn, but at the same time, I mean, like the 70s were sort of like the the heyday of like, kind of like classy adult films and porn. Well, it just, I mean, a lot of nudity started coming into movies. Yeah. Um, so you've never seen Deep Throat? No, God, no. No, I've never, I've actually never seen uh a pornographic movie i remember when i was when i lived in new york city in the 80s i think it was channel 35 used to actually show live pornography on television and if you would be changing the channel you'd suddenly go <laughs> like you've got to get something but uh no it's not it's not for me in any way shape or form I don't understand it I'm from Connecticut I don't um yes I'm judging yes so that's fair well it'll be interesting to have Paul on because he's obviously a brilliant guy he's a documentarian so yeah I think we should ask him some of these questions like how do you like where do you find the artfulness in adult filmmaking because I'd love to hear his perspective yes and also post COVID is anybody going to want to do a love scene again? That's true. You know? I mean, I, you know, you're going to want to make sure. I mean, it's like we're going way down the line. But I was talking to a director friend of mine and I said, you know, who's going to want to go back to work and do a kind of a love scene? It's like, I feel like the face and I keep saying this, the face of entertainment is really going to change. I don't oh know gosh. what it's going to be, but I just want to see the final scene of Casablanca with face masks on or from here to eternity with the two of them on the beach making out with masks on. <laughs> well, the other night there was a movie with, you know, a robbery movie. Uh, I think it was called Odds Against Tomorrow with Robert Ryan and Harry Belafonte. And of all the things in the universe, the movies from the 50s, they rob a bank and they're wearing surgical masks. So it looked like, I said, oh my God, it's COVID. It's um, the Corona. <laughs> the Corona. You know, corona. corona is a is a city, I think, on Long Island. Uh, so, it's a uh, tough time to be called Corona. There was a, there is a electronic store in Wisconsin, I believe it is, called COVID. Tough time to be called COVID, if that's the name. I know, that's, yeah. I actually, <laughs> I think we've mentioned this before. I have, a, I have a friend named Jeffrey Epstein. Ouch. <laughs> and uh, 
it's an executive, you know, at a company too. So not a good time for that name. Now, <laughs> before we um, get uh, Paul on, do we do we have any questions or did I met did I mess that up? I I sort of tweeted we were going to be doing something, but you know, um, you um, have any questions. I've moved to a new location in my house. Unlike the people online, you know. It looks like you're in Maria Menounos' bedroom. What's happening here? I know, I joked the other day when I was on air, this is my bedroom. I'm just- <laughs> That's what it looks like. Um, no, I'm, I'm at Maria's place. Um, okay. You've been there before. Uh, right near their yeah. studio, they have a little office and uh, some of yeah. the Maria Shrine is here as well. So for the uh, podcast listeners, our wonderful CEO is featured on the wall behind me. Um, but yeah, it's nice. We're, we're social distancing, don't worry, I show up. I uh, lice all the key that I used to get in and go straight to the office and work here, but uh, it's been good. Yes. Um, the what was I going to say? I was going to ask you something. Uh, Questions, which if you want, I do have one. Sure. Let's let's do a question. Why not? Um, Got all so the time in the world. They're wondering and hoping about Trailblazing Women. I don't know if you know anything about that series or if anything would be happening. But if it was yeah. happening, who's a woman that we haven't covered that you'd want to? Oh my God, there's, you know, there's so, I mean, I had such a bland answer. There's so many. Um, I did, uh, you know, for me, I'm just going to say it. It's Barbara. Let's get Barbara. Barbara. Yeah, Barbara Streisand in terms of the trailblazer, you know, just her, first of all, her movie career and then her directing career, uh, all sorts of philanthropy. And so when we were doing the show, which I loved it too, it was a great uh, collaboration that I had with Turner Classic Movies. I, I of course would love to start it again. We had so many different areas um, that we wanted to cover, you know, uh, independent filmmakers, stunt women, we wanted to do stunt women. So there's all sorts of areas in the motion picture business that we wanted to do. But I would definitely say, my God, can you imagine interviewing Barbara Streisand? I once met her and that was really exciting. But I love, I would love to interview uh, Barbara Streisand. Sally Field mm. would love to interview Sally Field. Just because- Have you met Sally Field? Cool. I've met her over the years. Um, I feel like the two of you kind of have the same flavor. Maybe, it's maybe it's my hair. Maybe, maybe it's, it's the hair. 60s hair today. The wit. Um, Did you guys ever show up at the same auditions or anything? Me and Sally Field, no. But I once, I'll tell you the craziest audition I ever had. Many, many years ago, there was a movie called, Cas they did a movie of uh, Casper the Friendly Ghost. Mm -hmm. And it just was like, sometimes I don't know why, like a movie will sort of gain heat and everybody in the world's auditioning for it. And I remember them sitting in line and it, it, there was, I saw Sissy Spacek. I saw Faye Dunaway, you know, I saw every, you know, young actor in Hollywood auditioning for Casper the Friendly Ghost. I forgot who actually got it. We'd have to look that up. But um, sometimes you see people, you know, kind of out and about and you never know whether you want to uh, mention it or, or not, you know. Mm, totally. I'm trying to see if we have any other questions. I, uh, speaking That's of winging it, I, I should have, uh, Probably prepped a couple of these before you went live. No, no, no worries. The other thing I was just going to say, just my own personal thing, you know, I know everybody's been sharing highlights of the TCM Film Festival. Um, 
I remember, God, just seeing him in person, seeing uh, Jean-Paul Belmondo mm. was like out of the box. That was really fun. I remember, and then later I interviewed her on the cruise, Leslie Caron. But Leslie Caron was being honored. She was on the red carpet and I was with Allison Anders. And I, you know, I went up to her and I said, you know, I'm all, I was all dressed up. I was on the red carpet for God's sakes. I said, uh, you know, Miss Caron, may, may I take your picture? And she kind of looked me up and down. She goes, I suppose so. Everybody else is. <laughs> I love <laughs> it. I, saw, I was like, am I being snubbed by Leslie Caron? Uh, <laughs> so that was cool. Meeting Barry Chase, uh, who is a dancer, and she was in Cape Fear. And I ended up playing the same part in Cape Fear that she played. So meeting her. Of course, interviewing... Um, Jerry Lewis. And then um, uh, finally for me, I think one night there was a night, they had a nitrate, was like one of these late night uh, nitrate prints of Theodora Goes Wild. And I think that was at the Egyptian and we all watched it. Um, uh, and that was what an incredible, oh. that was an incredible experience. But, you know, the audience hangs and just the, Every year I would do my same joke, which was, and I can't do, oh, I, sh I should have said it at the top of the show. I would, uh, my first joke of a movie I would intro is I'd say, welcome to the 17th annual TCM Film Festival, or as we like to call it, Coachella for shut-ins. <laughs> oh my God, I got a I got one laugh. I, I like it. It's, it's very apt. It's a very apt observation. You know, before we move on to the guests, I do have one quick question. I saw that you tweeted about SNL, which I also got to catch this weekend. Oh my God. I want to talk about it with you. I was really emotional. I just, I know. you know, it just was a, you know, I, I guess just as a constant and seeing, I keep talking about the same thing. There's a, a sense of intimacy of people trying new things and the vulnerability of it, I, I find to be very, touching mm -hmm. um and even if it's not as successful to me it doesn't really matter there's just you know something about you know knowing that the family is holding the camera and it it brings us all back to kind of childhood and just yeah you're winging it and there people don't have as many um inhibitions i think they're just trying things it's very human it's like very disar disarming and vulnerable and um yeah, it's, SNL is such an institution that there is a sense of peace given to you when you're like, the show must go on. Even if it's not the most polished episode, having it there does kind of instill a sense of like normalcy. Well, I always remember the most that, you know, probably for me, the most famous thing in my uh, lifetime was when Lorne Michaels, you know, post 9-11, and he said, are we, you know, that line where he said are we to i think it was to giuliani before he went cuckoo bird uh you know are we allowed to be funny and i i just thought that was just again touching that's what comedy is comedy is it's comedy and tragedy at the same you know at the same time and uh i thought it was very moving i mean i was crying it was just a relief to see to you know we're all in this together that kind of a spirit and and i told you i'm addicted to watching the different talk shows and seeing that some people are really good at it and you know it's funny and 
and some some people are not as they're a little bit too programmed, you know. It's really interesting when you pull back all the gaffing lights and the sets and you can really kind of see who really has that kind of X factor that makes you a star. I mean, with SNL, it was so interesting to see these comic performers. I'm not gonna use any names, but I feel like some flew more than others and it just shows oh. you. You know, the sketch I loved actually that I'm gonna to recommend to our audience was a newer cast member named Egon Wodum, who a uh, beautiful black young actress, yes. did the makeup tutorial where she's drawing over her face. I thought it was brilliant. That's yeah. a, that is an example. Thank you for reminding me. Yeah. We're absolutely brilliant. And for me, it, yes, it helps, you know, sort of rethink someone. I also thought A.D. Bryant, um, you know, I worked with on Shrill, so, but I was always a fan of hers before working with her. But I thought, I thought hers was hysterical. Um, and, uh, but yes, the makeup tutorial I thought was hysterical with the big eyebrows. She played it so straight. And then you can just do a little bit of uh, <laughs> almost like throwback, almost like old school, you know? Yes, it I is. It, it, I said that three weeks ago when we were doing this, like the 1950s. Yeah. Ernie Kovacs. So people are just trying new things. It's a new, this is, you know, this is a new medium. And we're trying to figure out, you know, what works and, and what does it work? Mm -hmm. And in my opinion, what works the most is honesty, is just humor that comes out of the, you know, out of the situation. And again, <laughs> seeing people's houses, uh, the inside of people's houses and, you know, they get very cute. They start showing little, they start getting like show and tell where they're showing little things. There was a great uh, thing on, um, Jimmy Fallon with Gwen Stefani cutting Blake Shelton's hair. And, and she like completely shaved the side of his head off. And she was doing a really good job. And then all of a sudden I was like, okay, you just, I think you just shaved off his the side of his head. <laughs> oh, what a time, what a time to be alive. When the camera turns off, you know? <laughs> so just all these things, like that would have never happened in, you know, Blake Shelton would have not gone on Tonight Show and said, Gwen's gonna now, you know, cut my hair. Exactly, it's a, what a time to be alive. Yes, anyway, all righty. Well, Let's uh, get Paul on the line. On. Um, Ryan, if we're ready, we can go ahead and bring Paul on the line. He gave some of his credentials. Um, Definitely a filmmaker who works on the fringes of what's considered mainstream, but incredibly important work and interesting work that we're excited to dive into. Paul Fishbein, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Hi, Paul. Um, okay, remind, remind us, we were talking at the top of the show, when, how did I get involved through this? I, I said Joe Dante, I think called me, but, but uh, yeah, well, a while ago. What happened was we, we had, been sh we had shot most of this documentary, which was really turning into a documentary series. And we had contacted Joe about hosting, but we thought it would be fun to sort of have a hosting panel. So we picked a bunch of names of people who we thought were kind of in the business, but there yeah. were film buffs that we knew had all the film knowledge and that would enjoy it. And among, amongst the names was, was your name and Kevin Pollack and John Waters. And I, we asked Joe, who do you approve of? And he approved of a bunch of people. And you said yes right away. And it was one of the easiest, uh, easiest hirings we did. 
Wasn't that fun? I was so excited to see John Waters' wardrobe. Yeah. Right. He had that, like, I think I, I, you know, I'm such a nerd. I secretly took photographs of his, all of his jackets. Well, I remember what you said when you walked in. I introduced myself and you said, this is so much fun. I can't believe I'm getting paid to do this <laughs> just yeah. to talk about movies. And you were like very excited. So I, I was, I mean, yeah. and, and with that group, my God. Yeah. John Waters fun. is a cult. He's a walking cult movie, you know? Yeah. John actually didn't want to be interviewed in another movie about cult, about Pink Flamingos. He didn't want to just do another Pink Flamingos interview, but hosting he was happy to do because he could talk about everybody else's films as well. Yes. And so tell everybody and me the name of it um, and where we can see it so we can get that out of the way. And when's it coming out and all of that? Okay. So it's Time Warp, the greatest cult films of all time. It's a three-part documentary series. Part one, Midnight Madness, is coming out on April 21st. And that studies sort of the birth of the Midnight movie and repertory cinemas and, you know, with Big Lebowski and Rocky Horror Picture Show. Uh, this is Spinal Tap, Pink Flamingos, Harold and Maude, Freaks, Reefer Madness, Eraserhead. And we have great interviews with, with uh, Jeff Bridges and John Turturro and Jeff Goldblum and, you know, uh, everybody from from Spinal Tap, Michael McKean and Rob Reiner. Uh, part two comes out a month later, and that's on cult horror and sci-fi. And then a month after that, it's the cult comedies and the camp campy movies. And the truth of the matter is each of these three documentaries can be viewed in, independently. There's no they're each they stand alone. They're all about each one is its own project so if you watch the comedy one first and you watch the midnight madness second it doesn't matter and it comes out on the 21st on itunes amazon voodoo anywhere where you rent or buy movies digitally oh neat so i'll, I'll probably watch it on amazon yeah amazon prime you know it's it's yeah and you, do you have do you have to buy each or buy or rent each one separately? Yeah, but they're they're inexpensive. But then at the end, in three months, it'll all be available as a package if you want to own all three. So, Great. and will I get residuals? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, were the and so tell me some of the highlights of people's recollections. Like, let's start with Jeff Goldblum. Uh, you know, Goldblum. Of course. Well, Jeff Goldblum. Well, the best, the, the funny thing about Jeff Goldblum was he was probably my favorite person that we interviewed. Jeff Goldblum's interview started while he was in the makeup chair. He started doing his interview with the director. They were talking. They walked onto set having a conversation about cult movies. We never said, we, ne we just stayed, he just sat down. We started shooting. And he never stopped talking for two hours. Yeah. The funny thing about Jeff Goldblum is he demanded that he have his own hairdresser and that we would pay for his haircut. And so the hairdresser, we, we agreed to pay for the hair haircut. Uh, he was doing it for free. He was coming to the studio. And then, you know, I got the call that the haircut was going to be $1,500. And I almost fell over. I said, who has a $1,500 haircut? And he comes into the studio and he had the haircut, but the guy came with him and he was trimming him and everything. And then we went through this unbelievable two hour interview. We got so much material. You could just do an entire movie of Jeff Goldblum talking. At the end of the 
at the end of the entire thing, he gets up from the chair and he says to everybody, I hope you got, I hope you guys got what you were looking for. And then he looks at me and he says, at least my hair looked good. <laughs> and it was like, yeah, Jeff, but he was great. He was great. He was probably my favorite. And he talked about, I mean, we had him for uh, Buckaroo Banzai, which is in part two, but he yeah. talked about Harold and Maude. He talked about many, many movies. So he's in it a lot. Yeah. He's a movie buff. Yeah. Um, I did a film. I may have said this in the television show, but uh, there were many movies I've been in that be, that are cult movies. And one of them is a movie I did with Jeff called Pittsburgh, um, which is very much, it, it's in the, you know, sort of Christopher Guest mockumentary type. Movie. Yeah, that was good. Good little independent film. Like yeah. yeah. But again, sort of under the radar, didn't get a wide, you know, didn't get a wide release. What did um, uh, Jeff Bridges say about Big Lebowski? That I, I mean, again, becoming one of the biggest cult movies of all time. Jeff Jeff loves the Big Lebowski. When yeah. we when we called his office, he talk about talk about the biggest maybe the biggest star that we got was the easiest person to get. His assistant said to Christine, our supervising producer, oh, Jeff loves the Big Lebowski. And we had an answer. Yes. In five minutes. Will you come to Santa Barbara and interview him? Yes. And it was great. And he was he was talk about a big Oscar winning star who is such a nice person. So low key, so self-deprecating, so friendly, so generous. I mean, you, you never know when you meet these people, but he was amazing. And he just told great story. I don't want to give them away, but he, there's a lot of Jeff. There's a lot of Jeff. Well, I mean, I don't want to give away the highlights, but um, he talked about bringing his he talked about bringing his family to set one day and okay. tells an outrageous story yeah there's a great outrageous story about that and again jeff uh bridges has also been in some really interesting offbeat cult movies aside from you know he's had such a his career he's had such a long long career um did he talk about his father at all lloyd bridges mm -hmm. No, just in passing, you know, okay. talking about being in an acting family. But no, he he just he talked mostly about Lebowski and the Cone brothers. And uh, he, you know, he's a photographer. And so he whenever he go, whenever he shoots a movie, he takes his own photos during the entire production. And at the end of the production, he makes these beautiful books for all the cast members and crew. So he came in with his big Lebowski uh, book with these unbelievable behind the scenes pictures of people that didn't even know they were being photographed. And uh, he just, you know, he brought that to show us. I mean, it's just the kind of guy he is. Yeah. Beautiful. Now, what is the origin of the Midnight Movie? Well, the origin of the Midnight Movie, um, New York City, the Elgin Theater, uh, a man named Ben Barinholtz, who unfortunately passed away as we were finishing production, we did get to interview him and he is in this movie. And he was sort of instrumental in really creating the midnight movie. Man, El Topo is pretty much known as the first midnight movie, but the one that really, before Rocky Horror, the one that really sort of put midnight movies on the map other than Rocky Horror was Eraserhead. Mm -hmm. And Ben Barinholtz really worked closely with David Lynch to get Eraserhead onto screens specifically the Elgin Theater in New York, and sort of kept trying, you know, they, the first time they showed the movie, you know, like eight people showed up, and then 15 people showed up, and it was the slowest word of mouth ever, but eventually, 
Eraserhead became a phenomenon in that in that midnight showing in New York City and then moved out to other theaters. And of course, Rocky Horror sort of ident became the quintessential midnight movie. And again, prior to home video, prior to DVDs or VHS, cable TV, if you wanted to see a movie, you had to see it in the theater. And if it failed the first time, you had to wait for it to come back. And sometimes they never came back. Yeah, well, that was certainly when I when I was growing up and I remember um, Rocky Horror, you know, it, it even, it spread to Connecticut. You know, the midnight movie that began in New York became a phenomenon and I have friends who were in California and it was happening in California. I think and it's still going on, right? It's still going on. But the thing about, about Rocky Horror that identify, that, that sort of is quintessential, characteristic of all these films is that they failed at the box office. Mm -hmm. They were failures. They did not get an audience and they were out of the theaters pretty quickly. And in the days before home video, a lot of them got lost for many years unless they showed up on television, but something like Rocky Horror was never going to play on television. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. So then, and and how did the um, did midnight movies at the drive, any sort of drive-in movies that you, that come up? In this there's a lot of a lot of these movies were had their greatest success at driving something like texas chainsaw massacre right which again was not a big box office hit when it came out but continued to play and continued to play as the second half of a b double feature mm -hmm. but did find an audience at drive-in movie theaters and and I, by the way i just showed my 14 year old daughter texas chainsaw massacre she's not even 14 yet and she said it scared the life out of her it oh. is still one of the scariest movies ever made and we also unfortunately lost toby hooper during production and we have his final interview in this oh, which was very very in fact we lost a lot george romero died during the production right we lost Stuart gordon recently we have his last interview okay. we lost sid haig who we have his last interview who if for devil's rejects um I don't know. I think we're the curse of of, of horror directors and actors. Some, yeah, there was, well, I certainly remember again in my childhood all the horror movies being at the drive-in, and 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 they called it dusk till dawn. Yeah. So it would, but mainly it would be it would be playing all night long. You'd have these horror movies. The, the fun thing about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is we went to shoot Ed Neal, who played the hitchhiker. He's the only remaining cast member who's still alive. Mm -hmm. And we shot him in front of the house, the actual Texas Chainsaw house. And then Ed took us on a little tour inside the house where you see what the house looks like today compared to what it looked like in the movie. And that was a lot of fun. And that's that's in part two, by the way. Um, and then let's talk a little bit about John Waters. I mean, again, the you know, one of the masters of I'll tell you, I want to hear something ironic. I guess this is ironic. I met John Waters at the Cannes Film Festival after the screening of To Die For. Oh. Your movie. And yeah. that's the first time I met him. And we were both friendly with Russ Meyer. So that was sort of the introduction. And then I didn't talk to him again until two years ago when we did the, uh, when we did the piece. Uh, and he's, he, he's the quintessential cult director, I think. John. Yeah. Is. An American treasure, he really is. Oh my God! And and I remember, you know, watching his movies, which I think I talk about in the. It was considered very daring and very forbidden to go to a John Waters movie in my back in my day. You know, you really, uh, you know, 
Well, me too. In this in the seventies in high school, going to see Pink Flamingos was the big one of the biggest deals of my life. Mm-hmm. You know, at that point, being a film buff and and feeling like it was forbidden, and being one of the insiders who knew what Pink Flamingos was, and then was able to tell everybody else about it. That was that was the best. Yes, I believe I told him when we were doing that. Um... The scene with the woman eating the eggs scarred me. Edie the Egg Lady. Edith Massey. She's a classic. I couldn't, I I mean, that to me is the, the we, that's my definition of a cult movie. But what, what's your, which I think we talked about too, but you know, your definition of a cult movie for me is like uh, someone who says, you've got to see this it's going to blow your mind. but do it's, you Yeah, exactly. It's a cult. You want to become part of the cult of Pink Flamingos. Right. Uh, generally, I think, I, think, I think generally, and everybody that we interviewed defines it. So the movie actually starts out with a series of actors and actresses de- describing what a cult film is to them. And it's yeah. a wide range, but generally it's a movie that failed at the box office or that, you know, didn't do what it was supposed to do that right. That is generally a good movie, but generally has some outrageous elements or something that makes it completely unique, that finds its audience through word of mouth and becomes sort of a cult of that movie where it's like, yeah, you got to see this. And that's how it becomes. That's how something as bad as The Room becomes The Room. You know, it's something that. You know, it's, it's past word of mouth and it's, you know, definitely has some elements that are going to be like, oh, that's outrageous or that's crazy or I've never seen that before. I'm glad you brought up The Room. I was actually just about to ask about that oh, movie. Yeah. Um, first of all, I in some ways, The Room is one of like the most interesting films I've ever seen. Like I, it's such a fascinating watch just because like part of the appeal is like, how did this happen? How did this get made? Um, but to me, that's an example of a movie that there's no really redeeming artful elements to that film so like do you feel like some level of quality has to be a prerequisite for a cult film well i think kevin smith who's in our uh documentary for clerks which is one of the cult films he talks about the room and i think he he kind of sums it up by saying these were a bunch of guys they may have had no idea what they were doing but that they had so much passion to do what they wanted to do that that hell or high water, they got that thing on the screen. Mm-hmm. And, and it didn't matter how good or bad it was. It didn't matter how bad the acting was. It didn't matter that, that this nothing matched and that, 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 that scenes were out of order and that it, it, it made no sense. What mattered is they got it done. They got it made. And then that theme sort of stretches a little bit to Ed Wood, who his plan nine from outer space is included pretty much in the same section where it's the same thing. It's just the love of movie making or just the passion to get it made sometimes is enough. And then it may take years like with plan nine for outer space to appreciate it for what it is. And in the case of the room, it was an accident. uh, And it became the first film to really, really replicate that Rocky horror experience in many years. Uh, and a lot of it was an accident, but that's sort of the charm of it. Yeah. Did you see The Disaster Artist? Yeah. That. Yeah. And that's discussed in detail as well uh, in, in, in our documentary. How about Dolomite? I'd love to ask just because that I, recently... I was going to add Dolomite. I, I, love, I love Dolomite and uh, all of those Rudy Ray Moore movies. But, you know, when we started this project, we, had, we were only going to do a two-hour documentary. 
<laughs> and we had about 200 films that we felt were worthy, including Dolomite. And what it really came down to after a while is there's probably 10 or 12 that have to be in no matter what. And then the rest of them, you have to sort of say, who can we get? Who's going to be able to, who, who are we going to be able to talk to about it? So some really great cult films like Dolomite get left out because Rudy Ray Moore had passed away. There wasn't really anybody to speak to. Um, and, you know, we were able to get Pam Greer. So Coffee and Foxy Brown made it uh, from that era. But you, you just, you know, we could have, we could have done 35 hours on this and still not gotten every film that really would be considered a cult film but um but dolomite is my name is terrific the uh i heard your podcast with with uh, larry and scott that was great it just totally captured it and i i uh, predict that will become a cult movie because i don't know if it really got um the the success it, it should have i just thought eddie murphy was well, because it's on because it's on Netflix, it's it's going to have an audience, and it's always going to be found. It's hard to kind of figure out what is a what is a cult film in the age of streaming. Mm. Like, if you can stream every movie, how does something become a cult film? Right. We included one film in our horror section that we felt became a cult film through streaming, and that was the god awful Human Centipede. Mm. And by the way, the lead actor of that guy died last week too, which I can't believe. Oh no! <laughs> yeah, we're really, we're really, we're really uh, bad news for the horror genre. Uh, but but Human Centipede really became word of mouth through streaming, through video on demand, in the yeah. same way that we're releasing our movies, like just renting on 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 Amazon or iTunes, uh, and then eventually Netflix picked it up. But it never would have found an audience for not that word of mouth. But it's very hard in this era to think what what could the next cult film be and i don't know, you know if it's going to i don't know if it's going to be a netflix film you know what was interesting about human centipede was i almost feel like the trailer was what turned that movie into a cult film because i remember that was what went viral just like the trailer like pitching the log line i think just <laughs> yeah. purely the shock of like this is a movie that's coming out to me that's sort of what cemented the cult element of the film yeah one of our producers Irv slifkin begged me to take it out he hates it so much but we had we had we have a great interview with ashlyn yenny one of the two female stars and tom six the director is a character and his interview is great he's he's out there and so we definitely had to leave it in as disgusting as human centipede is and it is pretty disgusting well, I think that there's always, you know, that's sort of part of the fun of the cult movies is that there's always going to be, I can't believe you didn't include that, you know, because everybody is so passionate about the cult movies that they, uh, that they like, you know. Yeah, I mean, we're getting, we're getting very excellent response. People love it, but we're getting a lot of crap from people who are saying, how could you not include The Harder They Come? And I go, you're right, The Harder They Come should be in there, but if you can't get Jimmy Cliff, then you can't put the harder they come in there. So we're getting a lot of that, a lot of, I can't believe you didn't include this movie. And we're like, yeah, if there's volumes five, six, and seven, it'll definitely be included. Well, hopefully there will be. I mean, yeah. we certainly need things to, uh, to watch. You could also do, you know, you could program a film festival with watching the movies and then having the films play in rotation. Be a great film festival. Yeah, because again, what's always so fun about these kind of movies is you hear about films you hadn't heard of, and then it makes you want to 
you know, what's your application? Yeah, and I think I think that's one of the one of the benefits of a documentary like this. There's going to be films that people are going to go, I never saw that. I've got to see. I mean, I don't know that anybody hasn't seen Spinal Tap, but I got to see Spinal Tap, or I have to see Freaks. I never saw Freaks. What yeah. is free, you know what I'm saying? Or Reefer Madness, you know, these right. movies that are just not in the mainstream. Like I gotta see the naked kiss or assault on precinct 13 because they've never really been in the in the mainstream at all. Um, what about uh movies? Are there any cult movies that have something notorious to them? I'm thinking of the movie Detour that stars Tom Neal, and Tom Neal was this very nefarious character and he assaulted someone. Do you think sometimes cult movies always have a have a little bit of a dark element to them? Well, no, I don't know if it's necessarily dark in the production side. I think there are some outrageous elements that make them like I think you use the word notorious. I mean, obviously, the end of Pink Flamingos is notorious right. for Divine. Um, you know, the Sam Fuller film Naked Kiss. I mean. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, Michael Dante, the star, I mean, he's basically playing a child molester and yeah. Sam, and he talks about Sam Fuller talked him into this and it admitted to him, this could hurt your career, but 50 years from now, people are going to be talking about the naked kiss. And it's, it's, I don't know, you couldn't make that film today. Nobody would touch that film today because it is, it is a little, it's very notorious. It's also a terrific film, but yeah. It's, a little, it's a little on the edge. And I don't think you see that film made in, in today. I love the naked kiss. There's a certain woodenness to the acting though. And to all of Sam Fuller's movies, but that I, you kind of get into it's sort of, uh, it reminds me, I mean, I know it's you know hard to relate this, but it's like Ann Biller's movie, the love witch. There's a certain quality to the woodenness that is part of, of the film and all of Sam Fuller's movies to me have that same quality. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. I will say though that, that The Naked Kiss has maybe the greatest opening sequence in movie history. Yeah. yeah? I know. It's, it's unbelievable. And then we, and we all, you, you guys talk about that um, in, in, in the documentary as well. Yeah, that is yeah. great. I remember the first time I saw it. And that was a movie too that I, people had said, you got to see this, you got to see this. And then I saw that. And, Shock corridor, yeah, and White Dog, by the way, oh, and White, White dog. dog, yeah, which is a movie. Now, for years, when I was in New York in the nineties, I think they showed it at you know Lincoln Center or something like that, and that was the whole the whole thing was that that it hadn't been in circulation, it hadn't been allowed to see the film. It never got a proper release. Yeah, it never did get a proper release. I think I think now you can get a Criterion version, so it's it has its proper release, I guess, for history. Yeah, that's true. Okay. I mean, yeah. who would have thought? Did we ask John Waters that? If who would have thought that his cult movies are getting Criterion collection? <laughs> yes, you know, polyester with the uh, scratch and sniff card. Yeah, that was wild. What year was that? Because I, I remember going to the theater. I can, I wish I still had my card. I do have it. In fact, I could show you. I don't want to move out of the screen here. It's here in my office somewhere. But um, I think it was, I, you know, what year was polyester? Well, it was after, it was after Desperate Living. So I, 81. I 81. There you 81. go. I was going to say sometime in the 80s. Yeah. 
I definitely remember going to the theater. It may have even been like I'd just gotten to New York or something like that. I don't know. But I remember, you know, the cool kids. You went yeah. with the cool kids to yeah. see that one. That was great. The scratch and sniff card is 40 years old and it still works. A little bit. Still works a little bit. <laughs> it's probably very is it valuable. Oh, uh, it's it's old and messed up, but if you have a DVD of the movie, you need the scratch and sniff card. So that's right. Now, what about William Castle movies? Does he come in to play? Not make it. Again, we've had we had some of those on the wall, but you know, you yeah. have to cut from 250 down to 50. And so no. You know. uh, what about any of Joe Dante's movies? Did he, which any of his films make it? No, I think Joe's movies are a little more mainstream, and they were yeah, they were big hits. I mean, Gremlins was a big hit. Inner Space was a big hit. So right. I don't think you could. Verbs, huh? The verbs. The verbs. Yeah, but I mean, I think that they were if they're if they're mainstream studio movies that got a big release and and did well, they're not going to get to the cult status. You know. Yeah. Um. It'd be interesting, again, once we come out of this, there's so many movies that are things that are happening. This is this whole void of people not really seeing things and will they catch on? Well, I think this is, this is, this is listen, this is a movie, this is a documentary series for movie lovers made by movie lovers. I mean, that's why we asked you to be one of the hosts. We, we love movies. We love cult movies. It's what I've always wanted to do. I've always wanted to do stuff like this growing up. Mm -hmm. And so when you have the opportunity, you're going to make it big and you're going to make it bold and you're going to make it fun. And you just appeal. Um, we're just appealing to people who, who love movies. And I think people will watch this and then want to see Harold and Maude. They will want to yeah. see Faster Pussycat Kill Kill because they're going to see, oh my God, that sounds so interesting. Yes. Um, so, and then my next question is just for some of the, some of the women that are like cult icons, some of the actresses and films, uh, are, are they involved? Yeah. I think Pam Greer's number one. You can, I mean, Pam Greer had a, a great career, still has a good career, but when you talk to film buffs, they think Pam Greer never got her due. She should be the biggest, one of the biggest stars in history. And when you go back and you look at those movies, they were bold and she was empowering and she was, she took control of a situation and she didn't, can I use language or not? It's fine. Yeah. She did, didn't take shit from anybody. And, and I think that, I think as great as Pam Greer is, I think a lot of film people think she's underrated. And so that's, she's definitely, and she gets a, a and her interview was great because she is a conversationalist. Another one that you could talk to for three hours and like Jeff Goldblum and ask two questions and it just, she'll just go and go and go. So we interviewed her a couple of times. Oh yeah. There are any other women? I know a lot of women from horror are quite famous. They do the rounds, you know, making, doing these, uh, you know, collectible shows and things like that. Um, in terms of horror movies? Yeah, what I'm trying to think of. What, well, we, 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 our horror you... movies included, um, like I said, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and unfortunately, Marilyn Burns passed away. Um, we did um, the two George Romero movies, Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead. We did The Devil's Rejects. We did Human Centipede. So Ashlyn Yenny, the star of Human Centipede, is great in this. Uh, we did Devil's Rejects. We did Reanimator. Uh, now, Mary Warrenoff. We could talk about Mary Warrenoff a little yes. bit. Yes. 
Mary Warrenoff, who is in three of our cult films, is one of the most fascinating and interesting and underrated actors of, of any generation. And so she was in Death Race 2000 and she's hilarious. She's in Rock and Roll High School and she's in Eating Raul. And, mm-hmm. and she is fantastic. And so Mary gets a lot of play in this and, and they call her one of the great cult actresses, but she's just really a great underrated actress. She really is. What other films has she uh, been in that we would know aside from those films? I'm trying to think of, um, did she only do cult movies or did any of these actors sort of cross over and do? Well, I, I, I don't, I think, you know, a cult movie by definition, you're not, nobody sets out to make a cult movie. If you right. set out to make a cult movie, you're going to fail. Cult right. movies, you don't say, oh, I'm going to make a cult movie. No, yeah. cult movies make you. They find their audience. So I don't think Mary Warrenoff, when, when she made when she made Eating Raul, I mean, she talks about her and Paul Bartel. They would get a little money, they would shoot. Then they would run out of money. Then he'd have to raise more money. And then he would buy film. And then they would shoot. And, they, and he would call her up and say, all right, I got some more money. Let's shoot some more. That's, yeah. that's like not cult filmmaking. That's just handmade you know, filmmaking. Uh, and they hope that it's going to be a big hit and it bombs, but then it finds that audience. Right. So, I mean, and I think in the case of the Roger Corman movies, Rock and Roll High School and Death Race 2000, nobody thinks they're going to be big hits. You know, the Roger Corman movies. And yet they go on to be a couple of the best cult movies of all time. Yeah. And Rock and Roll High School in particular. I mean, she is hilarious. And the movie is great. And we, we have an interview, you know, Alan Arkish. We have an interview with Alan Arkish. He's one of the best people you could ever talk to. He was just oh fantastic. God. Again, encyclopedic. Another film buff, you know, and just another oh. film buff. So, but um, I don't think you, you can't set out to make a cult film. So if a filmmaker does that, forget it. You know, <laughs> look at the trauma films, you know, Toxic mm-hmm. Avenger and, they they try to make cult films and that's why they don't have cult status because they were self-conscious they were trying right. to do this you know it doesn't work did you do i may have mentioned this in the documentary i never got to see it but my uh you know in, in gimmicks with cult films my brothers my older brothers went to see mark of the devil yeah and they got the vomit bag with the Right. You know, I mean, come on. This yeah. is great. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's the big famous scene where they just cut the guy's tongue out and it looks so real. That I saw at a drive in movie theater growing up in Philadelphia. Can Mark you believe the... our parents just sent sent us off to see it? Now, I wasn't I... allowed to see it, but my I was like, I want to see Mark of the Devil. I had no, I mean, I had parents, but they were, I mean, they weren't present. I mean, they allowed me to take a train from Philadelphia to New York City to go see pro wrestling by myself at age 14. So it was very different back then in the 70s. I know. I mean, all these, yeah, with all the horror, you know, all the horror movies. But yeah, I just remember, um, oh my God, what was the other, then there was a movie that came out, what was it, Bas- the Basket Case series. Oh yeah, Basket Case. Yeah, you, what about those? Well, Basket Case, interesting thing about Basket Case, that was really a home video cult movie. That came out at the very beginning when people were putting out VHS. So okay. it didn't really get a cult following in theaters per se, but okay. in the days when people were getting their VCRs for the first time in the early 80s, there yes. weren't that many movies available. 
So you read everything because you were so excited to have the VCR. Mm -hmm. And I remember Basket Case came out from a little company called Media. And at the time I was in college and I was working at Movies Unlimited, which was the biggest video store and, you know, went on to be the biggest mail order video company in the country, but it's the first big superstar. And I was working there and, you know, we could not keep basket case in stock. And we were talking about 40 or 50 copies at a time on rent every night. And then that, I would say that was a cult film brought on by home video. Later examples of that would be something like office space, which is in our documentary Mm. where that movie completely failed at the box office, but then look how popular basket case is today, strictly through home video. Office space, yes. Uh, So yeah, let's talk about cult comedies. Sure. Final Tap, of course. Right. Well, well, I talked about Rock and Roll High School. We start out, our comedy section starts out with three high school, three high school movies. Fast Times at Ridgemont High, Mm -hmm. which was, believe it or not, a failure when it first came out. Wow, I didn't know. Rock and Roll High School, and then Valley Girl which is a particular favorite of our director, Danny Wolf. And it was cool to kind of meet Martha Coolidge and talk about how she made that movie and what she went through to make that movie. Actually, and Amy Heckerling, who did Fast Times at Ridgemont High, it's interesting to talk to female directors from that era fighting their way uphill in a man, ma- male-dominated industry to try to make the movies that they wanted to make and the fights that they had with the studios to make them. Yes. Great stories. And, and so they, they deserve their cult status. And then we kind of move into Napoleon Dynamite. And we, we have the entire cast of Napoleon Dynamite. Wow. Everybody wanted to do it because everybody yeah. that was in that movie loves that movie. So that yeah. was a lot of fun. Wow, you're right. I forgot about that. And that one came out of nowhere. Exactly. It changed fashion. It changed it changed perceptions of what a nerd was. It made yeah. being a nerd cool, finally. And so that was important. Yeah, that's interesting. Comedy one. Um, any other comedy? Well, Office Space. Office Space is Mike Judge. And that. and yeah. it was great. And, and we have a bunch of the people from Office Space who are in it uh, talking about it. Um, I have a couple Run. of county questions. I hate to interrupt, but uh, interrupt. I, just, I just rewatched MacGruber last night. Some of those SNL films, I don't know if you caught like Hot Rod or like even Popstar recently, I thought was a pretty underappreciated film. Any like 21st century comedies that you think of? Super Troopers? Yeah. Kingpin. You know, Super Troopers was a, an utter failure that, that, became a big hit you know and we we got Jim Gaffigan now he's only in it for a short time but boy it was a it was great to have Jim Gaffigan uh talking about that because it did a lot for his career you know he's one of the top stand-up comics in the country now Mm -hmm. uh Kingpin which was great because uh Peter Farrelly said nobody wants to talk about Kingpin everybody wants to talk about something about Mary and so he was so pleased that, that we loved Kingpin and thought Kingpin was was really a unique unique cult film and i guess best in show is is fairly recent which is you know which is amazing which is another one i showed my daughter recently that she loved so such a funny movie yeah yeah it's so funny because you think of the comedies as almost becoming that they're successful you don't think that they but you know every one of the ones i mentioned was a failure when it first came out you know so that's why there's something about mary is not a cult film because it was a big hit but Kingpin, the one that they did right after, right. they said, well, I guess everything we're going to do is going to be a big hit. And it was a total dud. And it's actually a really great, very, very funny yes. movie. 
Yeah, yeah that one really has some famous uh, people in it. And yeah. I always think of that too, with someone incredibly famous, you know, that, that they got in the cast and they're doing something completely different than they ever did before. Not that it would make your list, but like The Cable Guy with Jim Carrey, you know, something like that. That's a, that's a bit of an underrated film, don't you think? Totally. And nobody liked that film because they wanted to see Jim Carrey do the same thing. It was really subversive. It yeah. really was, yeah. The off-brand, you know, movies. Well, comedians playing villains seems to, is its own brand, you know? Yeah. Right? I mean, not really villains, but, you know, Jerry Lewis and King of Comedy. I'm King of Comedy. King of Comedy was great. Well, it's a, it's a cult movie. Well, we, we, we had that on the list. We thought it might be a little, you know, a little too popular but it, it could have it could have made it and it may make volume four five and six you well know. here's a, here's an interesting question so when i for instance when i was in school and king of comedy came out it was just a failure and that's one of those things that we talk about now it's considered a success it took years and years and years for it finally, now people say it's a masterpiece, but it was for many years, it was not. I think, I think it made people uncomfortable. Yes. I think it really made people uncomfortable. Yeah. And, and that sort of has its own, you know, it either works or it doesn't work, you know? Right. You know, I think people were really uncomfortable with the De Niro role and, and Jerry Lewis was not funny. He was playing it straight. And I think it sometimes when you have expectations and, and it doesn't reach your expectations, you don't get it right away. It takes are multiple there, viewings, you know? Are there any movies that are like wonderful catastrophes like um, Valley of the Dolls, which was a movie that I, I participated in a live reenactment in the 90s of Valley of the Dolls. I don't know if you remember. Well, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls is in our documentary, the Russ Meyer film. Yeah. And we do oh. and we do have most of the living cast from that as well. Uh, I That's think show, Showgirls is a good example. Showgirls mm -hmm. is a is a bona fide cult hit right now. Uh, yeah. and 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 we have, we have Gina Gershon who was great talking about the very <laughs> fact that it was such a, a disaster and was so laughed at and yet everybody that talks to Gina Gershon all these years later all they want to talk about is showgirls and she says where were you 20 years ago now all you want to do is talk about it and it has really it was a disaster of a film everything about it was a disaster and yet today it's a quotable there's there's showgirls festivals people go to midnight screenings dressed up it's people right. recite the dialogue it is a bona fide it's a bona fide cult film and i think more so in the gay gay community than it is the straight community although it's pretty pretty funny there too yeah oh wow that's a great that's a great yeah. uh showgirls so now i know that jeff is dying to ask you if we can segue briefly because we're running out of time that uh and if you're comfortable i know nothing about the adult film industry he said you were peripherally involved with the adult film industry yeah i um my my claim to fame i got detoured on my way from philadelphia to hollywood i had a 30-year detour uh, I was the I founded AVN, the Adult Video News, the magazine, and the AVN Awards, the famous Porn Awards in Vegas. That's my fault. <laughs> so <laughs> I, no, I created I, that. 
I'm from Connecticut. I don't know. Uh, everybody's from Connecticut. <laughs> no, he said it's not, but like, so what, what, without being too graphic, what sort of awards do people? Well, get? well, we had best picture and best actor and best actress. Oh, and I thought had, it was going to be best. And we had best cinematography and best screenplay and best sex scene and best orgy and best oh, lesbian okay. sex scene. And, you know, it, it became a real industry unto itself. Um, yes. I'm hoping, I'm hoping, I'm working on, right now I'm working on a scripted comedy television show. I have the pilot and I have a great pitch and I'm trying to pitch it out and try to tell that story on television as a, as a half hour comedy. Uh, it's a pretty outrageous story because I'm a total nerd and yeah. I had no game and no idea what I was doing. But the reason I started AVN, Adult Video News, because I was a film buff and because I had a journalism degree and I was working at Movies Unlimited and I didn't want to work in retail and I wanted to be a writer or a publisher because I published magazines, but I wanted to come to Hollywood. And we wrote the first issues of Adult Video News. The reviews of the movies are written just like any other movie review. We were so serious about it that our seriousness, we became this standard that people look to like variety is to the movie industry or billboard was to the music industry. My magazine was to the porn industry. Yeah. And I got out of it 10 years ago to pursue a more mainstream career. And of course ended up doing a bunch of adult documentaries for Showtime. <laughs> so. And a scripted series, right? Huh? And a scripted series as well. Yeah. It was called submission. It was a low budget, sort of a, a female director who I'm friendly with. It was sort of her answer to, um, what Fifty Shades of Grey should be because she hmm. felt Fifty Shades was incorrect, and uh, I don't know. I think I know. I think I'm out of license with with uh, Showtime, but it's available. It's available various places. So six episode series. It's probably on their app, the Showtime I mean, app. Post uh, COVID, is there going to be an, an adult film industry? I, I think I left the industry right around the time where I felt it was ending, meaning. Right meaning once it was available uh, online for free, right. all of my customers who were video producers and, and movie makers who used to advertise with me, they started to lose their businesses pretty quickly. And right. once my ad dollars started to go down the tube, then we were dependent on sex toy, sex toy ads. And I just, you know, it was time. It was time okay. to get out. I, I don't like the idea of, of porn being free on the internet. I, I think there should be a barrier of entry. I don't like the thought of kids being able to get it. I really Everything don't. Everything you say sounds pornographic now when you say pornographic. I'm sorry. No, I'm no, sorry. I'm kidding. I don't um, hide from my past. I, I try to embrace it. Oh, there's no, you know, and I, like I said, I know nothing. I just didn't, I, it's just not my cup of tea, but I, I remember working with actors and they would get, they'd go on a plane and they'd go to Vegas for the awards. That was us, yeah, that was us. Yeah, so it must have been a big, Oh, it's a big deal. I mean, we had, you know, we had anywhere from three to 6,000 people. Uh, we had a television contract with Showtime. I mean, uh, it's still on Showtime. I think uh, we started that probably in the early 2000s. Uh, so it was a big deal. We had major stars and every rapper 
or you know hip hop artists wanted to play yeah. the show and i can't tell you the number of celebrities who came to watch the show who stood in the back or came backstage and you know it, it was I, a I big deal that's what i'm telling you yeah, yeah it's the truth i'd be doing a movie with some very sophisticated actor oh i'm going to blah 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 the band. yeah like, really yeah well, we talked with um john cameron mitchell you know he has pretty graphic sex scenes in his yeah. films and he says you know sex can be used on screen as like a toolbox for an artist you know in the same way that painters have a variety of colors you can use sex as a storytelling device yeah exactly john's in our movie you know hedwig and the angry inch yeah. made our list so it's he's in there and he was a fantastic really intelligent guy so yeah, a lot, lot of interesting that. stuff to say but oh, yeah short bus was pretty hardcore i mean it was hard what do you say pretty hardcore it's a hardcore pornographic movie yeah, yeah uh, it really is i remember it when it played up at sundance and people walked out and it was a big yeah it's like lars von trier i i saw uh, one of his films uh, in competition at Cannes had hardcore penetration uh, I can't believe I'm seeing this. If this played in the States, he'd, he'd be going to jail on obscenity charges. Here it's, it's you know, he's, he's in, he's Palm Dior uh, potential, you know. Yeah, it's so strange, you know, again, movies, we, you know, we, movies reflect the society. And so, you know, it's sometimes it's strange, like I'll look at movies of uh, the 90s and there's, you know, there's a lot of violent scenes, sex scenes, raping of women, and, you know, that you look at it now and you go, would never fly today yeah. so i think everything goes through kind of transitions and we were talking at the top of the show when i was growing up you know pornography movies there was like the the x-rated um and they play at the drive-in you know andy warhol movies and things like that right you know the, the film that i was mentioning the lars von Trill film was called the idiots now uh -huh. I know later when he did Nymphomaniac, there was some explicit sex as well. But the one in Cannes Film Festival was was The Idiots. Although maybe Nymphomaniac played in Cannes also. He's a he's a darling of the Cannes Film Festival. So yeah. Um, oh well, that's fascinating. Well, Jeff, do you have any? any, any tell everybody again where it's gonna it's where we can see it. So just okay, like, so April twenty first. It's called Time Warp. Midnight Madness. It's the okay. greatest cult films of all time. Wherever you rent movies. So if you rent them from your cable system, it's probably there. Easiest is probably iTunes, Amazon, Voodoo, Fandango Now, anywhere that you rent a movie. If you just want to rent a movie and it's available to buy, I think it's only 10 bucks to buy or to rent. I think it's $4.99 in HD. And uh, then volume two is just a month later and volume three a month after that. And uh, you can watch them out of order if you want. Okay, fantastic. I'm so excited. Well, I hope it continues. I hope. Yeah, that, uh, well, and it was great having you. You're great on the panel and you're funny and you stand up well to those three guys. And even though Dante and John Waters love to kind of dominate the conversation, you, 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 you were, you were good. You stood up to them pretty well. That's always, you know, it's, it's funny with people with move, you know, movie people are, are they really are very opinionated. Yes, of course. That's why everyone was there. So you never know. We love we love movies. We're film buffs. I know we can be very argumentative. The uh, do you have a my last question is do you have a what is your personal favorite cult movie? That changes all the time. Yeah, uh, I'll, I'll stick to what's in the in this the documentary series. Well, I think I was friends with Russ Meyer, and so I've always had a soft spot for Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. Yeah, it blew my mind 
when I saw it the first time and it always blows my mind. And then having Dolly Reed in our documentary and Erica Gavin in our documentary and John Lazar, it was like chills meeting these people. And then I would think, you know, I got, we got to interview John Cleese for Monty Python and the Holy Grail was always sort of, oh, wow. I always yeah. felt like, I always felt like that's one of the quintessential cult films because that's another movie that was a mess when they were making it and that nobody really got them, you know? And I felt like being a Monty Python fan gave me an edge because I was an insider because I knew something that everybody else didn't know. Uh, so having that and it still still holds up. So that was also one of my favorites, but it changes, you know, it, Female Trouble from John Waters is, is, is like one of my favorite cult films and yeah. probably 25 others are favorite cult films. I love so. Female Trouble. That's, yeah. that's, I think that's a Criterion release. I don't know if it made the, uh, for me, Office It's space. on our list. Yeah, we, it made it. It made our Office list. Office is probably yeah. one of my favorites. Spinal Tap, of course. Um, probably didn't make your list, but Albert Brooks's movie, Real Life. Oh, well, wait, I'm, an, I'm the biggest Albert Brooks fan in the world. Real Life and... and uh... That's a movie that I always, you know, when Charles Grodin accidentally kills the horse in real life, it's just one of my favorite and prescient, you know, completely prescient film about the future. Yeah, Lost in America, Defending Your Life. I, I love Albert Brooks, so... yeah. Um, God, I can't believe we're getting to the end of our conversation. I didn't, and you, you knew Russ Meyer. I should have, I'm sure somebody's screaming at me going, give me a very brief rundown of Russ Meyer just so people don't get mad at me. Well, it's hard to give you a one minute Russ Meyer story, but yes. my, my connection to Russ Meyer was when I started this adult video news, AVN, um, I wanted to do an interview with him because I was such a big fan. Now he didn't make porn movies. He made adult films, nudie films. He was like one of the creators of the nudie cuties. And, and he sort of was anti, you know, first amendment breaking the rules of censorship. He was a pioneer, definitely not a pornographer, but he, I called his office and he answered the phone and agreed to do an interview with me, a Q and A. And I was like, how does this guy answer his own phone? It's Russ Meyer, you know? It's like, you don't call Quentin Tarantino and he answers his phone. And that, to me, he's Quentin Tarantino. And we did the interview and it was in the magazine and we became, we became friends. And before I started my own convention, you know, the AVN show in Las Vegas, all the adult people would go to the CES show in Las Vegas. And Russ invited me to share his booth space to put my magazines out and we just became great friends. So before I moved to LA in 91, from like 85 to 1990, I would come to LA three or four times a year to see clients and customers and sell advertising. And I'd stay at Russ's house. And he had this unbelievable monument to himself in the Hollywood Hills. His house was painted bright orange, which is was the color of his video boxes. And mm -hmm. And the inside of his house was a monument, a museum of Russ Meyer. And he was crazy and he was funny and he was fantastic with great stories. And, you know, telling me, you know, you know, his, the history of all the women and all the, all the film shoots and everything. And he let me sleep at his house and I slept on an old army cot in a, in a, in a attic with film, with film cases around me with big film reels around me. And it was, he was just, it was just something else. And just, we became friends and 
he introduced me to Roger Ebert and I got to stay at Roger Ebert's uh, summer home in New Buffalo, Michigan. And uh, yeah, just, but he was outrageous, but he, Russ was one of these people as if he was your friend, he was your friend and it didn't matter. Yeah. And unfortunately he, he in later in life um, came down with Alzheimer's. So the yeah. last, the last part of his life, he was sort of not in great shape and we lost touch and he forgot who I was and, you know, but, yeah. but it was a great, but it was a great 15 years. <clears throat> God. Well, that's for people. At least he got to see success towards the end of his life. You know, people really discovered him. You know, two of his films, Faster Pussycat, Kill, Kill, and Beyond the Valley of the Dolls made our documentary. If he knew that we were calling his film cult films, he would be very angry. My films are not cult films, Fishbine. They are masterpieces. They are not cult films. And that's how he would talk. And he would call me Fishbine. He wouldn't call me by my first name. So. Yeah, the Valley of Dolls also, I believe, has a Criterion release, doesn't it? Yeah, yes, yeah. it's it's it's, it's a it's, really good one. It, it is a masterpiece. If, that's you know, fun. That's if anybody fun. hasn't seen that, that's if oh. if I could recommend one film, that's the one to see. Okay, that's a really you're right. That's a good one. And um, although, man, it's so fun to see it in a, a with a crowd. Oh yeah. The first I saw it, you know, I saw it at my house, and I. I said, all right, I, I get it. It's fun. But then I saw it in a crowd. Yeah. It played it played it, uh, at the Arrow in Santa Monica about a year and a half ago. Uh-huh. And uh, Dolly Reed introduced it. And it was fun to see it with the crowd again. Yeah. It's definitely fun. All right. I first I first saw it in college at a in a film course. Actually, a, a teacher taught it uh-huh. in my film course. So that's where I first saw it. Well, he definitely has a lot of, you know, it's not schlocky, it's cool camera angles and he obviously Tarantino influences and, you know. Yeah, everyone. You talk to any filmmaker, they love Russ. Yeah. The colors of it are nice. California, locale, you know, all of that. And Faster Pussycat Kill Kill looks like a John Ford Western. So, and it's beautiful and it's black and white and it's amazing. So I recommend those two Russ films for sure. Yes, and that uh, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls was interesting. Again, in my lifetime, went from because when Siskel and Ebert would do the show, and Siskel would always jibe Roger Ebert about it, and then by you know in his lifetime, it became a huge sort of art house masterpiece. So good on him. You know? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. There was supposed to be a, a Hollywood film based on that, based on Roger and and Russ making that movie. And for some reason, Will Ferrell was supposed to play Russ Meyer, which was weird casting, but it yeah. fell off. It never happened. And then Adam Rifkin is supposed to be doing or was trying to do a TV series based on Russ's life, which hopefully will happen because Adam's kind of an interesting filmmaker as well and yeah. loves Faster Pussycat and loves Russ Meyer as well and also has some great Russ stories so he was going to yeah. turn those stories into his TV series so Adam's a doll is he in the movie yeah oh. yeah he's oh, great yeah. he's he is he the best on camera I mean he talks about I mean I invited him to talk about Russ Meyer because he's working on this TV series but then he yeah. talked about Harold and Maude and he just talked about a bunch of a bunch of films and he's also another person who could have been on that panel film buff uh and but he's just he's got a great personality he's terrific on camera so. i love adam he's yeah. great all these are all my buddies who i miss we're all in quarantine anyway, yeah well we're all in quarantine um, well thank you so much for being on the show well, thank you oh, for having me and is it 
Um, come thanks back for in. being part of the project, which, which yeah. we appreciated it. I know it's been a couple of years, but it, it was worth waiting for. Totally. It was, yeah. uh, I said, we get to hang out. I was having lunch with Joe Dante and yeah. we had us lunch. It was, yeah. we, we had fun over lunch. I remember that, the, you know, what's fun about days like that is that the discussion doesn't end when the camera's off. You know, we went into lunch and we were. Yeah. Remember what Kevin Pollack said? He said, let's do this every year. Let's just do this once a year. Let's plan next year's now. I so, love that. Yeah. Kevin and I have made a number of films together. I think he's number one in the amount of movies we've co-starred. We've been in like four or five movies together. Yeah. So uh, I miss I miss seeing uh, Kevin. Well, when you watch the movie, you'll see him sitting right next to you. <laughs> Cutting me off, Dom being listening to John. I, if Joe Dante and John Waters dominate, they deserve to dominate. Yeah, they were. Yeah, they They're were amazing. You know what? What am I going to add to what the mask? You did? added plenty. Trust me, it, it, it's very valuable. Trust me. All right. Well, thank you. Thanks for being on the show. Anytime. Thank you very much. And uh, we'll talk soon. Okay. Thanks. Thank you, yes. Paul. You got it. Um, in terms of you know other stuff make sure you guys watch um paul's new movie it's going to be amazing and um eliana i'll let you take us out but we always say life is life is like a movie and i finally uh i finally getting my info right with the with the sweatshirt so i just want to make sure that this is my uh and it's absolutely awesome i've been wearing it the whole time uh, this hoodie is from global angel and it's an active wear brand and it automatically if you get it global angel they will donate 25 percent of the purchase back to the partner charity that you select from their menu and it's a great way to shop while giving back so global angel check them out and thank you guys for the for the sweatshirt so that's and and, and then now back to my wait to my pcm are we doing an adult movie? What's happening here? What is happening here? Now I'm back to the glamour. We're going to end with a TCM Film Festival. And Jeff, I, I miss you. This is so... I know. I know. But uh, we'll be back next week. Um, I'm out to a couple people, Eliana, so we can talk after the show. But um, until then, life is... Life is like a movie. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. And uh, keep watching movies. And we will see you next week. So long. From producers Maria Menounos, Kevin Undergaro, and the entire Popcorn Talk Network, we would like to thank you for tuning in. For questions or comments, be sure to visit popcorntalk.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of the Popcorn Talk Network.